0: Hi, and welcome to the podcast that guides you through the complex world of politics, economics, and markets. My name's Stephanie Kelly, and this week I am so excited to be joined by Abby Watt, a research economist here at the Aberdeen Standard Investments Research Institute, who's going to talk about the latest in our gender equality research series, A Woman's Place, which you've heard about on this podcast before. And our latest work is around creating a gender equality index for investors. So welcome to the podcast, Abby.
1: Hi, Steph. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's great
0: to have you. And I guess, Abby, you and I are based in Scotland, uh, although you might not tell from either of our accents that we are based in Scotland. But how are you enjoying Scottish summer and are you making the most of this
1: reopening? It's interesting that you, you've chosen to focus on the weather improving. I would say the, the reopening has been important in the sense that we can now go inside again, uh, given the reliability of the Scottish summer. Um, no, I think it's it's been great kind of getting to see family and friends again. I think that's the most important thing.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think if the scenes uh, by by the beach in Edinburgh this week were anything to go by, maybe you're right, the sun and then the rain and then the sun again. And uh, yeah, Scottish people are much heartier, I think, when it comes to sitting out, having a pint in the sunshine or in the rain. So maybe let's get started by talking about why we've gone for building a gender equality index as the next stage in our research. So just to remind people who have listened to the podcast before or indeed who haven't listened to the podcast before, Abby and I, along with our colleague Nancy, have been working on a research series for the past year and and a half now called A Woman's Place. And the idea with this research series is to delve into why gender equality is not just a nice to have, it's actually a really important issue when it comes to thinking about questions investors care about, which is long-term potential growth and market returns. So in the past, we've modeled for a lot of the relationships between the kinds of policies that drive greater female participation in the workforce. And this next step is around building an index. So Abby, maybe the first natural question, which I know is a question we actually got from a fund manager last week, is what is the benefit of having a gender equality index and not just using simple labor force participation rates?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, as you've outlined there, in the original research, we were definitely kind of focused on how you boost female participation And when we were building the the kind of gender equality index, we were trying to draw upon what we'd found in that research. So what we found to be really key was certain elements of policy and certain elements also of the culture that, that prevails in an economy. And so one of the, the benefits of having a gender equality index rather than just a, a narrow measure, like the, the gap in participation between the sexes, is that you can also incorporate some of those other factors that influence um, the kind of economic outcomes and also the the kind of gender equality stance overall within an economy. Because we, we did find that uh, the interplay between policy and culture was particularly important in terms of the actual outcomes of, of labor force participation of the sexes in economies.
0: Yeah, I think that that The culture element's really interesting, right? Because we kind of said in the research, we couldn't model it, but we know it's important because you see these countries that maybe we'll get on to talk about that are huge outliers when it comes to their culture, which weighs on female participation in the workforce, no matter how generous your policies look like on paper. So maybe let's let's dig into some of those countries in a minute, but that's maybe a good place to, to start then, which is around... What did we choose for the index? So you've kind of indicated a little bit. So we've got, right, three pillars, right? So we've got macro pillars, policy pillars, and culture pillars. Do you want to give a sense of what's in each of those pillars? Not the full list, but a sense of what we've got in there.
1: Yeah, so in the, in the macro pillar, we have kind of traditional measures, I guess, of equality in the labor market. So we have things like differences in uh, participation rates of men and women, um the overall participation rate of women but we're also interested in uh, the, the kind of way that women work so we've included things like gaps in part-time employment and gaps in self-employment as well um, so those are the more kind of macro factors we're looking at. And then uh, we also included uh, a number of policy measures. So this is things like mandated leave lands and parental leave within economies, uh, the tax systems uh, in economies and uh, things like employment protections, because these were all variables that in that initial research we found were, were quite important for the participation of women. Uh, and then the final uh, pillar as you've outlined there is, is empowerment. Uh, this was kind of a really important one for us to include in the index, given what we'd found in that initial research. And within that, we're measuring things like um, the, the kind of empowerment of women. So there's an empowerment index from VDEM that we're using um, and things like work equality. Uh, we don't have a direct measure of the gender pay gap because the data is just so patchy across the countries and across the time series that we wanted to include in the index. Um, so we're using this worker quality measure from the World Bank, and that's actually quite interesting because it looks at the, the kind of equal opportunities for the sexes in different workplaces, for example. So. This was kind of news to me. I wasn't even aware of this, but there are still restrictions on certain industries that women can work in in certain economies. And then also it measures whether there's any uh, legislation to ensure that you have uh, equal pay for men and women for the same work. And there's a number of economies in the index which don't necessarily have any formal legislation for that as well.
0: Yeah, I think that was one of the most surprising things when we were trying to build out this index is discovering that there are developed countries that we all are very familiar with major markets that either don't have, you know, that protection enshrined in law, or you can't work, you know, for example, at a particular time of day or in certain sectors. And it was such a surprise. And maybe that speaks to the privilege that we feel, you know, living in the UK and having relative freedoms like that, but it really was quite striking. And maybe I'll be another way in which our index shows, the gaps that persist is what we don't have, right? We don't have uh, the gender pay gap in our index, and it is not because it doesn't matter. It's because we can't get the data, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's like a, a couple of other measures that we wanted to to kind of expand and include, and I think another one would be childcare uptake. That was one that we, we had wanted to include because we think it's an important part of the story for the participation of women. And yeah, the, the data just is so patchy and it's, it's just not available for the, the cross section that we wanted to, to use.
0: And I think this is another area where, bear in mind, we were just trying to do kind of 29 OECD countries basically all developed countries and the fact that we are struggling to get data on those countries tells you a lot. I think about why this isn't a global index either. We weren't able to make this global because the data availability, even on large countries that are have huge data kind of supply still have issues. And then on top of that, I think as well, you know, a couple of investors I've spoken to have asked about why it's not global. And the other reason is in some ways, the questions you would ask if you were including emerging markets would be a little bit different. The indicators you would include would be a little bit different because things like access to credit can be very important in really less developed countries for women to be able to start businesses and to have financial independence. Those are less of an issue in developed markets. So we don't think it's, it's necessary to include them in this version of the index. But over time, we hope that in general, data will improve. We can expand this index, both in terms of the data we've got but all in terms of the, the country coverage. But maybe the next question to really address is how investors can use this index. So, Abby, I don't know if you have any thoughts initially around just the benefit of even understanding
1: where we're at with, with gender equality. Yeah, I mean, I would say we've presented this work um, in a couple of different client forums now, and there's definitely been interest just in the sense of people kind of educating themselves on on kind of what the, what the issues are, what the possible solutions are, what can be done kind of at the company level to try and address uh, gender inequality. And I think in terms of uh, other reasons why it, it's important for investors, I think you kind of touched upon the, the impact that you know, gender equality can have on long term economic outcomes, and the the impact that it, the direct impact that it has through the potential growth channels. And I think that that's a that's really key for kind of strategic asset allocators. So, to people who are looking at kind of long term investment returns, when they're um, designing a portfolio, uh, it's particularly important to understand the potential growth environment that's going to prevail in the economies that you're investing in, and I think the gender equality is is kind of pretty central to the the kind of long term potential growth outlook for for a number of economies.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think as we kind of said right at the outset, I think. The advantage of using this index rather than just labor force participation rates, which are seen as a kind of a normal thing to consider when you're looking at strategic asset allocation. The advantage of using this index should hopefully be that you have indicators that are more broad, but feed into labor force participation rates. So you're capturing the level, but you're also capturing the future in a way. A lot of our research has been around the role of policy and culture in creating a pipeline and kind of, you can think of it as sort of lowering the barriers clearing the path for women to remain in the workforce longer term and for them not to self-select out of certain jobs because of gender norms because I guess Abby, one of the things we often talk about is it's not just the number of women who are in the workplace that is an issue it's also are they being sorted into doing kind of lesser roles because they're expected to take on more caring responsibilities
1: yeah, exactly. I think it's also that, that kind of equal level playing field angle, and that's so important for the pipeline. And, and you know, what, what drives that? And it's come through in our research in terms of the importance of paternity leave for female participation. I don't think we can underestimate how important that finding is in terms of making, um, making I guess, making it equal between the sexes when you're looking at the career progression of individuals.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then one final potential application for investors, and it is, you know, at this point, just a theoretical one, but as with any of the macro ESG indices we produce, they can be used to tilt portfolios. So in, you know, in an active decision, um, or indeed in a passive setting, but for investors who are looking to actively allocate towards economies that are more gender equal, then this index gives a sense of which of those countries are, and could potentially provide that kind of portfolio tilt, at least in theory. So, now that we know it's useful for investors, and as you said, I think that education piece is huge. In some ways, I think the S in ESG is just a number of years behind the E. So, you know, five years ago, investors were really getting up to grips with what is climate change? What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? I think that's where we are with gender equality now. It's just about understanding the linkages and understanding the opportunities. I think hopefully this index helps to do it. But maybe. One of the interesting applications is that understanding what's going on. So, Abby, when you look at the index, maybe it's worth just talking through who comes out on top.
1: Yeah, so um, I, I think perhaps no surprises here, but the, the the Nordics come out on top. Out of we've got twenty nine countries in the the index, all OECD economies. Um, and we're looking at their, their general quality scores uh, over time from 2004 to today. Uh, and in the current rankings, the Nordic economies come out on top. So we have Sweden ranked first, then Denmark, Norway and Finland. Um, And then I guess at the other end of the the spectrum, it's more of maybe a mixed bag in in terms of where they're based. So at the bottom, we have uh, Korea, the U.S., Italy um, and Japan. And I think what was interesting, Steph, and you you highlighted this when you were comparing it to some of the other indices that you've built in this space. um, You said it was quite interesting to look at the dispersion at the sub indices within those economies um, and across economies. Yeah, I think what we find in, in other indices that we've, we've built has
0: tended to be that there's sort of a similarity that kind of countries that do well in one area do well in others. And I think at the very top of our index, that is true. But at the bottom of our index, there's such dispersion. So, you know, some countries like the U.S. is really strong on macro, but really weak on policy and relatively weak on the culture side or empowerment as we call it in the index and you know you flip that with japan which is really strong on policy but really really weak on culture so maybe let's talk about some of those because i think that's where the interesting stuff really is and i think when you look particularly abby at the us how how do you kind of explain away the fact that we're telling investors policy matters for macro outcomes for labor force participation but then how can you have a country that has really strong macro scores, but really weak policy scores?
1: Yeah, so this was something that stood out to us when we were looking at the rankings within the US um, in the sub-pillars. Uh, And it's actually really interesting. So what we've done is we've broken down the contributions to the macro score in the US from each of the actual indicators. And the US actually, although scoring fourth in macro, it doesn't score incredibly highly on the actual economic outcomes. So it doesn't score incredibly highly on the, the kind of participation gap or on the kind of overall participation rate of women relative to the others who are at the top of the macro scoring. Um, what is actually boosting the U.S. macro score is its uh, education attainment of women. So it actually ranks first for educational attainment out of our sample of countries. And I think this is just a, a really clear example of, um, I guess, from an economic standpoint, a wasted opportunity in a way. If you if you have a really highly educated portion of your workforce, but you um, don't have, I guess, them participating fully in the labor market it's it's kind of economically a waste of a waste of that talent in a way Um, but that was one of the the things that came out of looking at the the kind of uh, deep dive into the macro scoring for the U.S. and also Steph maybe it's worth highlighting at this point the the kind of drivers of the participation gap in the U.S. I thought that was quite an interesting finding. Yeah, definitely. So I think one of the dangers just
0: looking at participation rates or just looking at the gap between male and female participation rates is that it's, it's always subject to the economic environment that you're in and it can be quite cyclical. And so I think what's really interesting when you look at the US performance, and specifically when we look at the participation gap, the periods where we've seen the biggest improvement in the participation gap, so the biggest improvement in the the gap or the size of the difference between male participation and female participation, when that has narrowed the most, has been unfortunately because male participation was falling. So it was during the financial crisis, uh, and I think it was 2009 in our index, that what we found was that yes, the gap was closing, but it was closing because female participation was just falling less than male participation, which is not the idea when we talk about the economic benefits of having more women in the workplace. It is not meant to be at the cost of, of male participation. Ideally, you're just fully utilizing your labor supply. So I think that's interesting. And if you compare that to a country like Sweden, which is you know right in the top rankings of our index, we see that the participation gap for example, in 2010 in Sweden, is the strongest year in our kind of series that shows a gap narrowing. But that gap is narrowing because both female and male participation is rising that year and female participation just is rising more. So that's, to us, quite a positive signal about the economy. And it just goes to show why labor force participation rates alone, or even looking at the gap, which in some ways takes care of some of the challenges you might have her in the cycle, it's still showing you the cycle because it's so dependent on what's happening in at that stage.
1: Yeah, I think it's probably worth mentioning as well. One of the other indicators that we've included is the, the unemployment gap between men and women as well, because when we were building this, we were aware of the kind of impact of, of crises on male and female employment. And I think the, the COVID crisis is a perfect example of one in which you've seen a disproportionate impact on women. Uh, In terms of the labor market outcomes, and then you could say the same in 2009, but the reverse. So you could say that men were disproportionately impacted by the the financial crisis and the slowdown that occurred then. So That's just one way in which we're trying to account for some of those cyclical macro issues in the index as well.
0: Yeah yeah absolutely and and look this is why we use an index right like this is the benefit of an index is that we get away from individual indicators and hopefully give a more holistic view of what's what's going on so maybe finally let's talk about japan we always end up talking about japan when we talk about gender equality because it really stands out because it has such generous policies i think i'm right in saying they have paternity leave to the tune of something like 52 weeks for men but we obviously don't see that necessarily trickle through in spite of improvements in female participation in recent years there's still a gap and there's still a huge cultural challenge I think.
1: Yeah exactly um we highlighted this in our first deep dive where we looked at parental leave and one of the interesting things was the the generosity of the the paternity leave policy in Japan. Um, And the the key thing there was the the uptake of that leave is very low among fathers. I think it's around 6% of men actually take the leave. And I think that comes back to the importance of us measuring and looking at the influence of culture. So obviously we're using the Empowerment subindex within this Gender Equality Index. And interestingly, in the case of Japan, it's, it's ranked 29th overall currently. But if you were to remove the empowerment subindex from that, it would move up to ninth. So it just shows you that what is really holding Japan back in the index and in terms of its overall gender equality ranking is that that culture and that empowerment element of the index.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think hopefully again, just reinforces the benefit of having those three pillars of considering macro policy and empowerment in order to really understand the gender equality environment, if you are indeed trying to understand this from an investor's perspective. So I think that is all the time we have for today. But huge thanks to Abby for joining. As always, to our listeners, if you have any comments on the discussion today or questions or ideas for future episodes, you can email us at macromatters at aberdeenstandard.com. In the meantime, Paul Diggle will be back in two weeks, so please join us then.
1: Please note that email is not a secure form of communication, so don't send any personal or sensitive information. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein, and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen Standard Investments. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns. Return projections are estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.